0: Welcome to the Save What You Love podcast. I'm your host, Mark Titus. Today I get to sit down with Dr. Jen McIntyre, who is the professor of aquatic toxicology at Washington State University's Puyallup branch, and honestly, just one of the lead humans out there doing things in the world that are making a difference. Jen and I met back in 2015, and we were working on a stormwater runoff video for the Nature Conservancy. Since that time, Jen and her colleagues have found what was for them the holy grail of a toxic chemical that has been causing all kinds of disruptive killing effects on coho salmon here in Salmon Nation, specifically in the Pacific Northwest Seattle region. They found it, and Jen testified to Congress about it this last summer. We talk about that her passion for science, and what gets her up in the morning, and really how to get ourselves out of these boxes that we've confined ourselves in and find wonder in nature. We talk about that a lot on this show, as you know, and I, for one, can't get enough of it. If you're digging what you're hearing on this show, I'd appreciate it if you'd head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating there. It really helps to boost our visibility across all platforms. And also, it's getting into holiday season. Head on over to avaswild.com, where you'll find Salmon shipped right to your door. Now with completely compostable, recycled products, there's nothing about it that uh, can't be broken down. And we're super thrilled that we're partnering with our friends at Crystal Creek on bringing you that. All right. So for today, Dr. Jen McIntyre, enjoy the show, and we'll see you down the trail. Dr. Jen McIntyre, welcome.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah, where are you joining us from today?
1: I'm in West Seattle, my little homestead on the side of the city here, um, but it's it's a little distance from where my lab is in Puyallup at the Research Extension Center for WSU.
0: Well, uh, I love West Seattle. It, it's like its own little universe inside of the city, um, but you do make those trade-offs with proximity to stuff. Um, and uh, and I, I love joining together here on a day like today in November, <laughs> which is very appropriate for the work that you do. And, and we'll, we'll dive into that in just a minute. But um, just to start, I always like to start by giving you an opportunity to uh, t- tell us your story. Where How did you come into the work that you do and what keeps you going day after day?
1: Okay. Nice. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't get asked asked that very often. Um, I feel really fortunate to be doing the work that I'm doing. So I had an interest in fish of all things as a, as a young child. You know, nurtured by my uh, rabid fisherman father, <laughs> um, and that just eventually led me to to being able to to do work that was focused on fish. I got a job as a technician in at the university of Washington before I went to grad school and in in a fish lab, Um, in grad school, I was able to study food webs, mostly focused on fish, lake, lake food webs, and then focus specifically on coho salmon. Um, you know, and those were just wonderful opportunities that I guess, you know, you talk to enough people, you eventually some doors open for you. Right. and then that led to the work I do now focusing on stormwater.
0: You know, I, I almost got ter- carpal tunnel syndrome uh, scrolling through your CV. Uh, it's, it, it's impressive. And um, there's so much amazing stuff you've done in your life. Did you have a clear idea at, at a certain point in your life as a young person, maybe uh, what it was that enthralled you and what you know what you wanted to do? Did you have that early on? No,
1: no. I, gosh, even, even in middle, I mean, I suppose it depends what early on is, but even in middle high school, I still thought I might be a fashion designer.
0: (laughs) Fish fashion. I can see it.
1: (laughs) Like nothing about fish. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't good at math because I wasn't applying myself. You know, I wasn't that, I wasn't that interested in school. Um, But I got interested in school for an odd reason. (laughs) I had uh, I had been skipping math class,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and one day I was actually ill and had spent the period in mm-hmm. the nurse's room, and my teacher kind of accused me of skipping class, which was totally fair, and, I'm, and I was you know enraged at being you know mis misidentified as a a skipper. (laughs) And so I decided to show them. And then uh, kind of randomly, I think I got a good grade on a test and I thought, huh, that wasn't that hard. I could, I could get good grades on tests if I wanted to. And so I started to do exactly that. And my, my, my parents, I kind of convinced them to do this thing that some kids' parents did where for every A you get, you get $10. Wow. So we did that once (laughs) because then it was all straight A's and they're like, yeah, you seem to have your own motivation now. So
0: (laughs) whatever it takes, baby, you know, like I, I, you know, I can identify, honestly, I uh, classic, uh, high school underachiever here. Um, I was terrified of math until I had a sort of a similar story. Um, geometry, like I had a wonderful teacher, uh, Who said? You know what? All this other maybe you're you're recalcitrant about all this other stuff in math, but this will allow you to build a deck. Ah. And I was like, Oh, I can get my brain around that. And so I need
1: to do that. Yeah, that's
0: right. I may need to do that. And and to your point, like I then applied myself and was like, Wow, I can actually do this. Not that I was ever tearing off like a prairie fire in math after that, but I could get along, which uh, made school a lot easier. Um, as we mentioned before, here's here's some breaking news. It rains here in the Pacific Northwest, especially right now in November. We're expecting, in fact, several inches between the next two days here in Seattle. Um, just to kind of get into this conversation from a hundred thousand foot level, where does all that water go?
1: Mm. Well, very much depends where you are, right? Um, and we're getting a lot of saturated ground. I got an, an alert this morning for landslides, right? Um, but, it, you know, where I am and and where you likely are right now, most of that water doesn't have soil to soak into. And so it ends up running off. So we talk about stormwater runoff. And that's literally the water that can't soak into soils because there aren't any soils exposed. You know, it's roofs and it's sidewalks and it's driveways and roads, so instead, the water's looking for somewhere to go and eventually runs off, either collected into a pipe that's put into a stream or out into the sound directly. A little bit of that goes to wastewater treatment plants, but the majority of it, just untreated, ends up getting shunted into some water body.
0: So we're, we're going to get into a little more micro focus as we go along here, but still on the macro level. Um, What is the, for for all of us out here listening and learning, what is the correlation between stormwater runoff and deleterious effects for salmon, especially coho salmon?
1: Okay. Uh, I mean, what we've learned over the years is that there is something about stormwater entering creeks, uh, usually because this is where we were seeing this problem, so so. There were these mortality events, you know, coho coming back to spawn after spending a couple years in the ocean. You're like, oh, you're almost there. (laughs) You're you're almost completing your life's mission. So they come back to these streams, and in places where there's a lot of stormwater runoff entering those streams, we're finding them dying. So it was a a long road to get to understanding why exactly that was happening.
0: Yeah, and um, you are the... You're right at the forefront of of trying to understand that and and getting somewhere with it, which is so exciting, which is why it's so wonderful to be able to talk together today. Um, we did a video together, and we'll we'll put the link to that in the chat called um, or re, re, we'll put the link to that in our show notes. I forget which platform I'm on. Jeez, um, <laughs> um, and uh, it was called solving stormwater and. Uh, it's a great primer on all of this but where um just again on a big level where where's the hope in all this i mean when when you look at it from a a large problem perspective it's like well what do how to you know how do we stop the rain that's I mean we've got a city here it's already built um there's impervious services already built like sidewalks and and streets and we can't do a whole lot about that. So where's the hope in all this? What can we do right now, right this minute? I know there's more to come, but right now, what are we doing and what can we do to address stormwater runoff?
1: Right. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of things we can't change. And then there are some things we can change and some things that are easier and harder. So we try to get into that a little bit you know, I, I mentioned the imperviousness, the inability of the water to go through the ground as being the reason all of that ends up in, in the, in the streams and in the waterways. Um, you know, so we, we can slowly retrofit things like sidewalks and roofs and all that stuff with green infrastructure, right? We can have permeable sidewalks where the water can go through mm-hmm. uh, and soak into the soil before eventually getting into a stream. Um, you know, we we're, we're we are able to do permeable roads as well. We're still working on that technology. Um, rain gardens, places that allow water to, to collect, that stormwater to collect and soak into the soil again. Green roofs, you know. The, but that's a slow, pro, most of that's a slow process of replacing existing existing infrastructure, right? So where I see more of the hope is a couple things. One, one is focusing on areas that are currently being developed anywhere that we're building on the landscape. Now we can make more easily those choices of including green infrastructure, including ways to make our hard surfaces permeable to water. Um, You know, by using that in the first place instead of the traditional um, approaches, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, things like, using safer products, um, you know, driving less, you know, those are always good ideas. Those are They seem harder to sell for some reason. You know, they involve lifestyle changes. And, you know, it's a whole area of social psychology and in in science to understand how we can encourage people to make those lifestyle changes, how to make them easier for people. But I think encouraging green infrastructure uh, to be included in our landscape, you know, and that's something that regular regular people can do if they have a home where you could actually build a rain garden and catch what's coming off of your roof, that kind of thing. Um, but even without that connection, you know, there's nothing like encouraging our elected leaders to implement these things. You know, some of this is is not a lack of technology. It's a lack of political will to make the change happen.
0: Right um and more on that in a second as well but the uh talking about rain gardens we uh spoiler alert we get to work together again uh later this month and we're going to have a new video coming out which uh will will of course announce when when it's ready uh really specifically addressing one victory and uh Ooh. it's a spot that's under uh highway 99 the bridge going across uh the ship canal bridge here in Seattle Uh, and to my knowledge, it's, uh, it's got something like 2 million gallons a a year that of, of, um, of runoff that comes off of this bridge. And, uh, there was a project done. Um, could you tell us about that project and, and what exactly a rain garden is and does what it looks like? Kind of walk us through that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the original idea was not necessarily about treating huge, huge areas, you know, this, this technology can be applied in small areas, but but increasingly we are now using it to, to deal with larger volumes of water. So what it is is a, a simulating a wetland, not, not quite a wetland, simulating a place where the water can soak into the soil, right? A natural mm-hmm. feature of the landscape, things like forests, things like um, uh, wetland um wetlands where water can interact with the soil system and what that does is it captures not only the water um, but also many of the chemicals that can be carried by that water and so it will it will capture them either physically or by sticking on to organic matter that's in the soils or the plants and then it can be degraded um, by microbial action or it might just hang out there and be stuck Mm. So there are some kind of longer term questions about, well, you know, for chemicals that don't break down, things that are elements like metals like copper and zinc, those aren't gonna break down once they're in these um in, in these rain gardens, but they will be sequestered. They will be trapped there is the idea.
0: Right. And and as you said earlier, it's not like rocket science literally it's uh it, we're talking about using strata like gravel and um rocks and and things that are readily available right
1: yeah yeah very important point and and non proprietary you know nobody owns this technology there are proprietary technologies that people will install or, um, you know, businesses and municipalities will also install, but the rain garden idea also we, we call it bio retention, depending on whether you're going to catch the water that goes through the soil or just let it eventually trickle all the way to great to groundwater. Mm-hmm. Um, this in our state, uh, is, is prescribed by this, the department of ecology as having a, a gravel base layer, right? So that's just, For rapid drainage. On top of that, then you have a mixture of sand and compost, Hmm. you know, very simple things. Uh, there's this, whatever the ratio of it is, is more sand than compost. Uh, and then on top of that, often there's just a layer of mulch and usually you'll have plants in there. Um, you know, a little bit for functionality, but a lot for aesthetics.
0: What are, what are some of the, what are some of the plants that, that can thrive in, in that environment and, and are, you know, Um, like you said, they're beautiful, but they're also serving a real function.
1: Yeah. So that's, that's an area of, of continuing research, right? So Mm -hmm. we here in the Pacific Northwest have a different climate than other places that also use bioretention systems. But in our region, we need plants that can both deal with wet soils and also with dry soils, right? We don't want them dying during the summer when it's not really raining. So one of the successful groups of plants are, um, are actually sedges, uh, and, and you also want them to have not too dense of a root system because in that case, the um, little particles that come in with the, with the stormwater will, will just form this clogged mat layer, right? So you want a yeah. certain type of root area to happen, but sedges is common. Um, there are also some deciduous trees that are used in those systems, but they're not providing that benefit so much in the winter. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. So if, if, you know, I'm, coincidentally, you know, uh if I'm building a new house uh and or a new structure of some sort, um who would who would I go to to, you know, I mean this is like going down to the Fred Meyer uh you know nursery and and asking folks or like who what are some of the resources out there to to ask folks like what what should I do if I want to build a rain garden? What kind of plants should I get? And do you have do you have any ideas on that?
1: Yeah, yeah, so so there will be resources available from different municipalities. So at the, you know, th- these things tend to be available, I mean, at the county level, at the state level, for sure. And then, you know, where I where I work at Washington State University in Puyallup, uh, we're part of the Washington Stormwater Center. And mm. that is a center that was mandated by Washington State to support implementation of treatment technologies for stormwater, you know, largely to help uh, people who hold these permits for for stormwater pollutants, <laughs> deal with the actual legalities of that. But associated with that, we have a lot of resources about how to do how to do rain gardens, how to how to treat stormwater um, that anybody can access.
0: Amazing. Well, we, we will we will post that URL in our show notes, and we'll we'll also give you an opportunity to um, tell folks about that at the end of the show. I uh, wanted to move into uh, an, another point here, which was a, a big deal this last year. Um, this past summer, you testified about your and your colleagues' groundbreaking research on the effects of the common tire antioxidant 6-PPD-quinone on coho salmon to members of the Congressional House Natural Resources Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigation. It's a mouthful. Um, what happened there?
1: Yeah, the... Well, a couple things. One, one is I, I want to be able to tell people about the research that we did that led to that. Perfect. Um, so, should I start there? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So, you know, we knew there's something about stormwater uh, that's killing the coho, and it took us like almost 20 years to get to the point where we can we can now say it's this chemical. Uh, first, we were first we needed to show. It's stormwater. Then we needed to show, well, what is it about stormwater? And we learned that it was um, something coming off of roads. From there, we were able to narrow it down to it's something coming from tires. Uh, and then we had this, this uh, very detailed chemistry approach to ultimately be able to identify that chemical because turns out there are thousands of chemicals in stormwater, it's not just a matter of like whoa it's that one causing the problem uh, and it turns out that the chemical that we identified had not previously been known to exist Wow so you couldn't you couldn't go look for it because nobody knew it was there Wow so the and, and even more complicated uh, is one once we isolated this chemical we still didn't know what it was uh, so how do how did we figure out what it was? Zhen Yu who was the postdoc working on the project at the time, he was able to say, wait a minute, that the formula, when it, he knew what the formula was, um, even though he didn't know the identity of the chemical or where it came from, the formula looks a lot like this other chemical that is an ingredient in tires. And that's 6-PPD. And it turns out it's used in all tires. You know, Initially, we weren't sure. Uh, and it's put in tires to protect them from ozone. And ozone is just a Uh, You know, a naturally occurring uh, chemical in our in our atmosphere, and there's more of it produced as a result of pollution from vehicles and, and that sort of thing. And so when that ozone interacts with the surface of our tires, it wants to break apart the tire polymers. And, huh. you know, I'm sure we've all seen, you know, different types of rubber that have cracked from age and ozone is right. one of the things that does that. So you have to have some chemical in there to protect the tires from cracking. What, what, what nobody knew, I mean, somebody should have been thinking, what, what does that chemical become after ozone attacks it instead of the tire chemical, the tire polymers. And it turns out it becomes 6 PPD quinone. It, it breaks some bonds and, and makes some other um, some other um, attachments with oxygen. And now it's six PPD quinone. Turns out now it can more readily leach into water. Ends up in the water instead of the tire, and it's super lethal to coho.
0: Jeez. First of all, thank you for the pronunciation clarification. I took a 50-50 chance on the Quinone and went with Quinone and uh, that's that's appreciated. And um, you know, when we did our solving stormwater uh, video back in 2016, I want to say um, that that was still the mystery, the big mystery. so th- this is incredible. Yeah. This is absolutely remarkable that you and your team have isolated this. And of course, which that begs the next natural question: Where do we go from here? What does this mean? I mean, like we said earlier, mm-hmm. we we've, we've already got roads. We all, for the most part, all drive cars. Um, we're not going to eradicate cars tomorrow. What's the next step? In now we've identified this chemical. What happens next?
1: Yeah, really. And, and so many people are concerned about this now that now that we've identified this chemical, and are are. There are several approaches that are being taken, um, Nobody's paying attention to one of my favorites, which is where are our hovercrafts?
0: <laughs> uh, I love the hovercraft. Yes, <laughs> you know, I'm down we're, with the hovercraft.
1: We're going to be on tires for quite some time, it looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do we do about that? Uh, on the one hand, we have these treatment technologies, right? Let's get more treatment of our stormwater before it hits the receiving waters, before it hits the, the streams and the, the near shore marine environment. Uh, let's get more rain gardens, more bioretention, more filtration happening of that water. But on the other hand, we're also you know, we're also very much uh, focused on what we call source control, which is not letting that chemical get in the environment in the first place. That's easier than tracking it downstream and trying to stop it from you know, reaching our, our fish, for example. Um, and the tire industry is now getting serious about finding a replacement for 6-PPD. Wow. Something that will both continue to protect tires, but not be such a problem for the environment.
0: And was that a result of the uh, congressional hearing that you testified at? Was was that part of that process?
1: Uh, not explicitly. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not sure exactly what... Tipped the needle for them because earlier on they were more saying, "Oh, you know, look, we can just treat stormwater. We don't need to replace six PPD." So, I'm not sure what led ultimately to the balance where we're now there, they are talking about needing to find a replacement, and the, the chemical companies that manufacture six PPD, they themselves are part of this race to find an alternative because it is such a widely used chemical. It's produced in, you know, really high, um, uh, abund- really high masses, I guess it's mass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and it used throughout the world to build tires and other types of rubber that are vulnerable to, to being broken apart by ozone. So the tire company, the, not just the tire companies, but the chemical companies that make six PPD are, Uh, interested in a solution.
0: That's, that's great news. Um, You know, the approach that uh, lots of folks are taking now, including me and us uh, with uh, Ava's Wild are in using your dollars for good and um, Mm. being able to, you know, you can exercise your right to vote. Hopefully you're doing that. And you, uh, you can have your voice heard on platforms now that are open and accessible to everyone, um, social media and and other things, and you can use your dollar and that's kind of your big three right there. So, um, for folks listening, is there anything that people can do from a consumer perspective or from using one of those three tools that we have at our disposal, uh, to help speed along this process with tires, um, give an attaboy to the, uh, to the industry, uh, what, what do you, what do you have in mind that um, might be beneficial to help move this thing along?
1: Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is not something that people can do right now. Um, but I, st- I still want to talk about it. So, yeah. you know, as, as, even before we knew what this chemical was, once we knew tires were the source of the chemical, you know, we, we started talking about salmon-safe tires. You know, how do we we're going to need a tire that's safe for salmon? Um, and there there happens to also be a group called Salmon Safe that that certifies products and certifies yep. businesses for you know, for example, vineyards that that don't use pesticides. Right? They they will get they can get salmon-safe certified for their wines. Yep. So we've been talking awesome. with that group about. Yep. You know, a salmon safe tire getting certified as salmon safe. Well, how do we know what that tire is? That's something that we're, you know, there there may be right now a kind of best in class among existing tires that are less bad than some other tires, right? Probably Mm -hmm. based on the amount of 6PPD that they have in them. Um, And so one of the things that we're trying to do is get funding to do the research, try to figure out if there is a a best in class that could be recommended and people could choose that over, you know, another tire if they're interested in helping to protect uh, the environment from from this tire chemical. Um, Ultimately, though, we want to produce a, you know, we want to identify a a safer, a much safer alternative, hopefully an alternative to 6-PPD that won't produce any toxicity to aquatic animals. Um, And that's, you know, again, that's going to require a lot of research to be done on potential alternatives, whether they, you know, because we do know other chemicals that can be used um, in place of 6-PPD. There are already existing alternatives. Are they safe enough for the tire itself, you know, slowing down that breakdown by ozone so the tire doesn't just Crack and fall off your <laughs> right, right. fall off your wheel while you're driving, um, but nobody knows about how those alternatives are going to impact aquatic animals. None of that research has been done yet, and so we have a little bit of funding to start doing that work. But it's you know it's going to be a little while before we have those alternatives and and are able to offer people a salmon safe tire. So in the interim, uh, you know I I think it's mostly just about encouraging people to support good choices. Right. Politically, basically. Um, And, you know, for those who are able and interested in lifestyle, lifestyle changes, you know, the, the, you know, the diverting your downspouts, you know, so that they soak into the soil and, you know, driving your car less, working from home more, which COVID's (laughs) been good for, for a lot of people.
0: Absolutely. And, um, and these are all things I'm, I'm sure we can, we can find on, on your site. Uh, is, is that right?
1: I hope so. Kind
0: of <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're going to maybe do an update. Um, you know, I find it's ironic too, that or not um, it's, I think it's such a perfect symbol of where we are currently with the climate crisis and um, the, all the challenges we're facing here in Salmon Nation um, that you've got this, this symbol of this tire, that would break down by the thing that is actually uh, causing its breakdown operating the car. So it's like this cycle of, of breakdown, right? You know, the ozone from the car is breaking down the, um, the tire itself and the whole thing's kind of breaking down, which is a little sad, but super hopeful that there are incredible humans like you doing this work Um, I noticed in your, uh, CV that back in the day you led high risk youth in a wilderness situation, uh, in Ontario. Um, and it got, got me thinking about a a common theme on this, on this show. How important is a reverence for the wild in nature to the work that you do? And what have you noticed when you immerse young people in that setting?
1: Mm, That's a really good point. Um, you know, there, there's so many, I mean, there's the save what you love. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's, there's, there's so much common wisdom like that, that describes how the way we interact with our environment, um, you know, our, our, learning about how the world works affects our choices in how we interact with the environment. And I, <laughs> Today's youth, uh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> obviously, the, the screen time a lot of kids get now um, is is obviously detrimental to developing those you know those nurturing relationships with the natural world, right? Um,
0: a- absolutely. You know, I, w- I was even noticing yesterday. Um, it was you know it was um, it was dark out and was feeling a little torpor and you know didn't didn't just kind of feeling, you know, a little down, like didn't want to get out, but sort of made myself leave the screen, leave the work I was doing and take the dogs and go to Discovery Park and go for a, um, you know, a, a small hike and 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 run the dogs. And of course, everything, attitudes changed and, uh, you know, I'm a, a much better person when I uh, come back from that experience. What? How do you think we need to get people, young people in particular, um, to put, put these things down for a minute and, um, break that, break that spell, you know, um, it, it's not that easy when it's, it's, and it's by design, it's served up in front of you, you know, but what have you noticed in your experience, um, has been successful in, in getting folks engaged with, nature, engaged in the wild? And then what have you noticed after people have been engaged in the wild?
1: So there's so many levels to that, right? There's, there's the level of, uh, the, the benefit, the health, mental and physical benefits of being outdoors. Mm -hmm. Uh, even if you don't understand anything about what you're seeing around you, right? That that's, uh, apart from that, there are physiological benefits um, to being outdoors. So how do we, you know, how do we get kids outdoors more? You know, obviously some of that, if, you're, if they're young enough, they can be, they can be forced outdoors by their, by their parents or guardians. Um, having programs available for kids to interact with the environment um, on, on any level, right? Just playing and playing outside. Um, but even more than that, I think then taking it to the next level is, is learning something about that environment. And I think that that people who are able to inspire children to have wonder and awe for just, you know, any one element of, of something in their natural world just opens up opens up these pathways in their minds that that enable them to have that appreciation. You know, so if if you can point out to a any age person really, just something fascinating about the environment that they maybe wouldn't have noticed on their own and then explain why that is maybe, Um, that that makes such a huge difference. So I I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to link that to programs that exist or programs that should exist for, you know, humans of all ages. Um, I don't know, I don't know very much about that, but I just see the critical importance of getting outside, spending time outside, and learning something about finding finding some way to experience that wonder of nature on on Absolutely. any
0: level. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, you know, I, th- I think the most sagacious uh, wisdom I've heard when asking lots of people this question, "How do you save what you love?" Um, really, is very simple: two words. Love something.
1: Mm, there.
0: And uh, you know. You and I have an affinity for salmon. Um, I, I just, I love hanging out with scientists like you. Uh, I love when people have this singular passion and um, love in their heart for a particular thing. It could be butterflies, it could be trees, it could be rivers, it could be geomorphology. But when you find that thing, then it's like everything else wakes up. And, and you sort of notice mm-hmm. all the other things that are, are around that thing. So, you know, I, I, I completely agree, like whatever, whatever it takes to, to get into that, take, say yes to that opportunity, you know, whether that's a camp or a a, a walk in the woods with a, a, a friend or a mentor, um, you know, it's, it's just, I think it's kind of about breaking that spell, you know, like mm-hmm. we're in a box and we're looking at screens inside of a box and, and, but the minute that spell gets broken, it seems like great things happen.
1: Being forced to notice something. Yes. And so I, I have just a small anecdote about that. So perfect. one day uh, I, I noticed how, you know, you can be sitting outside doing, you know, oh, things happening out around you. And when you force yourself to just calm down to the point where you notice, like, an ant crawling in the grass or on the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. At that moment, you now notice so many things happening. Like, oh, I never, I hadn't realized so much was going on at even just this tiny little micro level. And I, I mean, maybe that's just me, but, but Uh -uh. I love that moment of like, oh, look at what's happening. And then you notice things, you know, whatever, just the wind and the, you know, any, any wildlife, something as small as an ant, you know, just, I know, and I obviously live in this world of you know, filled with wonder. I feel really fortunate that I have this lens that I look through. That I'm like, oh wow, everything's amazing.
0: <laughs> I, I hear you, and I'm, I'm just so grateful um, to to be able to um, hang out with you and and you know look through that lens uh, vicariously from time to time. Um, it reminds me of uh, the naturalist, um, wonderful, wonderful author, one of my great mentors, Annie Dillard talks about, um, the lights in the trees. One day she just noticed like very much like now in, in autumn, the, the, the trees that are just like a a vine maple that's just lit up and, and, in gorgeous fire red. And, and where did that come from? And then, oh my God, where did that Creek come from? And where are the, you know, the smolts in those, that Creek that, that I thought were, I thought there was nothing in there. Um, one, one thing that I've been doing recently, that, uh, I think is right up your alley is my, my friend, Russ Ricketts, who's been on this show before, got me into river snorkeling. And so, yes. So, um, just, and it doesn't have to be some far away place. Um, I, I go just to the Snoqualmie river. It's 40 minutes door to door from downtown Seattle where I live. And all of a sudden, uh, I'm in a brand new world.
1: And there's so much to see i i feel that even for lake washington you know i'm like if you have kids there's no reason you shouldn't have a little mask they can put on and just put their face in in one foot of water even like there's so much to see even right there little little like little sculpin everywhere everywhere you know and then you notice more and more and more and i i learned the river snorkeling thing when i worked for the forest service in northern california and so my job for the summer was amazing which was nice. snorkeling, snorkeling um up rivers and then in the in the at the end of the summer we got to snorkel down the river to count the adult salmon um mm. and just I, and i started doing it just for fun on the weekend because i'm like oh my gosh everywhere you look there's something there's like turtles there's i mean snakes which i was like i didn't know that snakes would Yes, you know, so that freaks some people out but i didn't you know there's a snake on the bottom of the river just hanging out just hanging out over there You know?
0: incredible well, yeah. And, and it's like, talk about breaking that, that cycle of ennui of like, um, you know, there, there's this natural feedback loop when you're, when you're constantly on a device, uh, you know, you're, you, when the, the dopamine hits are not coming as fast. Cause you've looked at all the TikTok posts or whatever. Um, but that doesn't happen in nature. And, and I think for me anyway, just speaking from my experience, it's, it's just entirely about getting outside of myself, mm. about, um, being a part of belonging to something bigger than myself. Um, you know, to your point recently, um, before all this current deluge of weather, uh, I got up into the North Fork of the Skycomish river and snorkeled by myself and saw, a hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of salmon, of pinks and kings and coho and b- building reds right in front of my face. <laughs> and they didn't care. They were just like, after a while, I just sort of, if you're still enough, you can sort of become a part of their, their little world. And um, it's just pure magic. It is, it's pure magic. So I know um, you get to do all kinds of really cool things in your work. And I've been privileged to, to be with you a, a couple times when you're netting fish and you're doing physical um, tests on the fish and then looking in, into a, a micro world of organisms and, and salmon eggs and all the really cool stuff you do. What, from your perspective, though, is the coolest part about the work that you get to do?
1: Hmm. I mean, as a scientist... It's about learning, learning new things, you know, discoveries, and it you know it doesn't even have to be something big. Just oh, you know, right now we're learning, we're we're testing the effect of temperature on how this new chemical six PPD quinone is toxic to coho, you know, because mm. there's different temperatures out there in the real world, and we've only studied so far one temperature that was in the lab, right? Um, you know, and so doing that experiment, we're learning something nobody's ever known before. Wow. Um, you know, so that's that's just the the straight up science part of it, um, you know. But but the others the other side of it is, uh, for me, I really enjoy uh, my research to be have an applied focus. Mm-hmm. So we talk in in science about having you know research that's basic science where you're just learning mm-hmm. something for the sake of learning it, um, or applied science, which uh, we're learning for the purpose of being able to do something. Uh, like in our, with, with an environmental problem, for example. Um, and so my extra value added besides getting to learn things nobody's ever known before (laughs) on a basic level is being able to learn things nobody's ever learned before. That's going to be a direct benefit to improving our, our, you know, I'll, I'll say decreasing the impact of humans on our environment.
0: It's such important work, and I'm so grateful you are doing it. I know how hard you work. Um, as a scientist, I, I I can only imagine that it can be frustrating when um, there's a populist sentiment that uh, distrusts science, and we all know if you're you know at all paying attention right now, currently politically in our country, there is such a deep divide. There's such a polarization between folks. And I think it's really tragic that science has somehow gotten wrapped up in that in, in various capacities. Um, what would be your advice for us out here on, you know, and what are your observations on how a um, how to, how to get more Involved in science in our daily lives, or how to approach science in our mm. daily lives, and and B, you know, what's your vision for? Uh, much like we were talking about about nature sort of being this great equalizer, what what is your vision for? Um, how to come together to solve the common problems that we have um, as a society.
1: Boy, that is a difficult question. Ugh. You know, th- there's always been this difficulty translating science. That's another expression, right? Translating mm-hmm. science. Um, you know, science is not a thing. It's a process. And anyone can, you know, anyone can understand that process, you know, although some of the technical aspects of a certain field might be difficult to, to get up to speed on. But that takes time, right? It takes time yeah. to learn for yourself what the science process for a certain discovery a piece of information that you might hear on the news to learn for yourself the details of that, because in science a lot, the details are important and that that is something that gets lost in translation, not just that a detail that might be important, but the fact that, that science can be, um, complicated, right? Uh, uh-huh. because there are details, you know, that that's something I experienced personally in my work when I was focused on, um, copper toxicity to coho salmon what people got out of that research was that low levels of copper could be very toxic to the peripheral nervous system like the sense of smell um, of coho which was the nervous system that we were looking at okay and that's true but the details were that it depends on what else is in the water and so if there's like a bunch of organics matter in the water um, You know, the copper actually isn't bioavailable. It's not a problem because it can't actually interact with the fish. And that was, it's a really important detail that, that got lost in that translation of the scientific results into common parlance. I don't know what the solution is to that. I mean, I suppose there's a having good science communicators, people who are translating science in, you know, for common people, having people who are good at that job, And also um, being able to find a trustworthy source of that translation, right? So people who want to learn about what science is saying, you can't trust any resource that's available on the internet. I'm sure people know that by now, Um, whether, whether it's intentional or whether it's just a lack of paying attention to the details by the person who's translating that science, something really important might get lost. So... You know, f- finding a source of a, finding a translator that that you feel like you can trust um, them to have looked deeply enough to pull out those important points.
0: That's a great point. Um, and you know, there's certainly superstars in the science field. Um, Bill Nye, for example, who's you know from here, and uh, and then Neil deGrasse Tyson. Are are there other folks that you really admire that are? really taking um, a science message and, and breaking it down for folks in ways that are digestible?
1: I wish I had some recommendations. I've, I'm so focused on my little my little bubble over here. Um, I will say, though, that I'm encouraged when people who have studied science are interested in becoming those communicators and becoming um, the link between science and Making decisions about science. So I've had two graduate students actually enter into the Knauss Fellowship Program, which is a way for uh, for, for people to be involved in uh, have internships basically in policy. And so they'll do this after they have a, a master's degree. And it you know they they were able to tell me I didn't know most of the people involved in science policy work don't have a science background. You know, and, and so the ability to, to understand the complexity of a problem is really reduced. And, you know, again, you've, you've got to be able to at least be aware of the important details that you're trying to make a decision about and do that, that science to policy decision making process. So, you know, I, I'm very encouraged um, by what I hope is a bit of a trend of, of people studying science wanting to be involved in that in, in helping make decisions.
0: Well, I, I, for one, think you're a fantastic communicator on, uh, on, on the work that you do. It gets me fired up every time we get a chance to talk. Um, you know, I, again, I just feel privileged to be able to hang out with folks like you and, um, you know, like other, other folks from, from UW, uh, Dave Montgomery and, um, from, from that background, people that I think it is such a, uh, uh, a feather in your cap to be able to communicate about the work that you do in a way that is um, digestible and uh, compelling for for folks that aren't doing the work every single day and understand all the complexity that goes into it. Um, so I I I think you're doing a great job of that, and I, I'm I'm going to keep telling your story.
1: As, as <laughs> Thank you, doubly. Oh. <laughs>
0: um, you you brought up copper, and um, I I think it's a you know that was something that you were focused on early on, and of course, that's um, in in Bristol Bay, and which is a, a big topic of of uh, storytelling that I'm, I'm focused on. We're looking at a giant open pit copper mine potentially in the headwaters of the world's last fully intact wild salmon system. Um, based on what you know, how does that strike you as a uh, an idea uh, moving ahead?
1: I I'm actively in the middle of teaching my Pacific salmon biology and ecology course, uh, during which I still bring up this issue of you know development in the watershed of Bristol Bay and and particularly for mines, so I still think this is a, a huge issue, and it's not just about the copper, right uh, up of there. Course. It's 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 not just about the contaminants that will end up in the water from developing that mine. It's also about the infrastructure that'll be put into, you know, what is essentially now wilderness that will promote, you know, additional development. Um, the mining impacts alone though (laughs) are enough to, to really just, just, sorry, just (laughs) no.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, I, I always gravitate toward the, um, the, the first part of that, that you brought up. It's, I think that the, the folks that are advocates for a mine are, you know, one of their strategies um, is to get you into that, that rabbit hole of, uh, well, the, the possibility of a catastrophic failure is X, you know. Um, and uh, to me, that is, that is moving past the most obvious elephant in the room, which is the infrastructure. The, the entire conversation we're having here today about s- stormwater runoff is a result of infrastructure and uh, that's that's the tip of the iceberg it's also straightening rivers it's damming rivers it's over harvest it's creating hatcheries as a way to repopulate the um, the population and and oh lo and behold the hatcheries aren't good for wild fish and on and on and on so to me again like the the bigger picture um, the the most imperative picture about, once you put that footprint into a wilderness setting, it changes the complexity of that place forever. And we've, I mean, you've seen that here, here in the lower 48, right?
1: Yeah. And it's, um, it's hard to go back. I, w- I won't say it's impossible, right? Uh, concrete is forever. That's a bumper sticker I remember. And it's, it's not true, but it's, yeah, it's pretty close to true. Um, so I think that the, you know, and we, we live in such an interesting country, right? Where you can't tell people they can't develop, right? That's, that impinges Mm -hmm. on our, on our freedom. But, you know, those also impinge on other people's freedoms. So one thing I'd like, this might be a naive comment, but, (laughs) you know, people argue that, well, we need mines because we need to extract natural resources like metals because we use them in our products. And that's, you know, ours is, we live in this technological society, yada, yada. And I'm not I'm not arguing against that. Um, I would really love to see, though, a cost benefit analysis of when it makes sense to mine our landfills. When when are we going to start mining our landfills, which are filled with all sorts of you know rare minerals um, that have just been discarded?
0: Love that. I I talk about the underutilization of recycling copper in particular a lot when we have discussions after watching my film the wild and uh, I have never heard anybody hit that on the head though Hmm. that's a super interesting idea I don't think it's naive at all love that Hmm. 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 we'll talk further about that okay Um, so uh, we're gonna start wrapping this baby up for now Uh, I'm really psyched to uh, get a chance to work together again here soon and we're going to be able to film another new cool little piece. Um, but I also wanted to mention too, that uh, if, if you're ever interested, I, we did a fully functioning uh, educational kit uh, surrounding my, my last film, The Wild. Uh, it's, it was designed for grades six through 12, uh, but it's, it's really, I think, sophisticated enough for folks in in undergrad um, possibly in beyond and uh, had a wonderful uh, teacher and writer Laura Tucker help us with that. So if you're ever interested in that you you can let me know about that too. Okay. Um but what as a custom here on on this show, we always wrap up with this fun little imagination game and I'm going to have you imagine for just a minute if you will. This is a fantasy of course, but let's say your house were on fire and you get of course your your loved ones out including your pets. That's that's first always. Okay. But, um, if you could only bring one physical thing, what would that be?
1: Oh my gosh, this is so sad. (laughs) This is so sad because my answer is my laptop.
0: (laughs) Hey, I think that you noticing that it's sad and that is of course your natural reaction is that's what you would grab. Like. That makes it for me.
1: It's, it's my work. All my work is, you know, my work is all on this laptop, and I try to break, I try to back it up, but I, that would be just a huge setback in my research.
0: Knocking, <laughs> knocking on wood, as we say this, and I, I have, boy, it, really, if it comes down to it in practical terms, that that is the same for me. Oof, yeah, <laughs> boy, be rough. Well, let's let's call it a, a metaphysical thing now. Like, um, if you could only take out of this fire two components about what make you, you, your sense of adventure, whatever those things are, what are those two things that you would pull out of the fire?
1: Oh my gosh. Not good at this exercise. Um, I'm thinking of like all the mementos and the photographs and, um,
0: I'm thinking more of like a metaphysical thing, like about your, your, your traits about what make Jen, Jen.
1: Oh, oh, if those were going to burn up.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. You could just take two of those things. Okay, like okay, okay. Curiosity or something like I, that.
1: Yeah, I was going to say um, curiosity. Mm-hmm. I have it curiosity and optimism.
0: We need those you know, right now.
1: As, as a toxicologist, I could see my work as really depressing, but I don't. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have this eternal bubble of hope that rises, even if it, it bursts or is squished, like it just keeps right, it just comes back up. It's like the living dead of of hope.
0: <laughs> we need you, Jen. Yes, that's a wonderful answer. And um is there anything that you would leave in this fire to be burned up, rid of in your life?
1: Oh, um perfectionism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Can do without that, probably.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's leave that there. I can relate. Uh, it's such a pleasure to hang out. I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. And, um, if folks want to get involved with the work you're doing, follow what you're doing, where do we send them online to go do that?
1: The Washington stormwater center. Um, in that that covers, you know, we have under that umbrella, we have various programs and one of them is, is the research program.
0: Excellent. Well, we will link to that in our show notes again. But for those listening, maybe that want to remember that, do do you have that URL just off the top of your head?
1: It's uh, WashingtonStormwaterCenter.org.
0: Perfect. All right. Well, Dr. Jen McIntyre, thank you again for joining us on the show and uh, looking forward to our next chat. And we'll, we'll see you down the trail.
1: Okay. Sounds good. Thanks so much, Mark.
0: How do you say what you love? How do you say what you love? Thank you for listening to say what you love. If you like what you're hearing, you can help keep these conversations coming your way by giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts. You can check out photos and links from this episode at avaswild.com. While there, you can join our growing community by subscribing to our newsletter. You'll get exclusive offers on wild salmon shipped to your door. And notifications about upcoming guests and more great content on the way. That's at avaswild.com. That's the word save, spelled backwards, wild.com. This episode was edited by Patrick Troll. Original music was created by Whiskey Class. This podcast is a collaboration between Ava's Wild Stories and Salmon Nation and was recorded on the homelands of the Duwamish people. We'd like to recognize these lands and waters and their significance for the peoples who lived and continue to live in this region, whose practices and spiritualities were and are tied to the land and the water, and whose lives continue to enrich and develop in relationship to the land, waters, and other inhabitants today.